Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 25. We are coming to the end or close to it of our study in Matthew's Gospel. Actually, Pastor Jason will be speaking next Sunday and he's going to finish things up for us as we end with the Great Commission of Matthew 28. If you remember back, we went through chapters 26 and 27 during uh, Good Friday and Easter and that time of the year. And so we're going to skip from our ending here in chapter 25 to the end of Matthew's Gospel next Sunday. All right. Well, I'd like to read for us a part of this passage in Matthew 25, beginning at verse 14, the parable of the talents. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, The kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, to another one talent, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents, and see, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents, and see, I have gained two more. And his master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what, you, what belongs to you. And his master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him. And give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the end of this chapter, I pray that you would help us to understand the point of these parables that Jesus told to see what awaits us when we cross to the other side and stand before the King of all kings, and to understand what it is that you expect of us in this life. Help us to live, we pray, in a way that honors and pleases you. Amen. We are all just one heartbeat away from eternity. That's a pretty sobering thought. And we don't usually think about that until something tragic happens and we hear about it in the news or when someone we love dies. A few weeks ago, we all heard about the horrible shooting in Colorado at a movie theater. 
And we were shocked by that. I mean, can you imagine thinking you're going to a movie to watch, you know, this opening and you're going to go there with friends or family and just for entertainment. And then something horrible happens like this terrible shooting where 12 people were killed and many more were wounded. This past week, too, in Minneapolis, in this area, we were reminded once again that Wednesday was the fifth anniversary of the I-35 bridge collapse. And we all remember that. In fact, we had people from our church who told me that they had gone over that bridge not long before it actually collapsed. They were doing the road construction down there and the weight was piled up on one area where it proved to be too much for the bridge. But all of us, again, were shocked by that because, you know, bridges don't normally just collapse. And in that accident, 13 people were killed and many more were injured. And recently... A friend of mine that I work with down at the EFCA headquarters was tragically killed at his cabin at the lake. Brian was out for a boat ride on a Sunday night with his wife and they came back and pulled up to the dock and because water levels were low, he hopped out of the the boat and he was going to bring his boat up to the lift and the lift that he had was an electrical lift and apparently... During the time of use, the wire that was there to the lift had been in a place where it was worn. And it had broken through. It had frayed. And so when he was in the water and he touched that lift, he was electrocuted and died. His wife called for a neighbor, called for a friend to come. They unplugged it. They had Emergency workers came very quickly, but they were unable to revive him. Fifty-six years old. And I think about his wife and I go, how do you go from having a boat ride on a Sunday evening with your husband and enjoying the beauty of the lake to Monday morning planning a funeral? Brian loved the Lord and his funeral was well attended by over 500 people there and about 500 came to the visitation as well. And the pastor that morning said, I bet there's a lot of you who feel like you've just lost your best friend. He was that kind of guy. The reality is that we are all just a heartbeat away from eternity and only God knows when that moment is going to come for us. But what happens then? What happens when we are on the other side? Well, it's interesting to me that just three days before Jesus was crucified, He told these stories to the disciples to illustrate what was to come. And there are two stories we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the parable of the talents, and then we're going to look at the story about the sheep and the goats. And what both of these stories tell us is that there is a coming judgment for the believer and the unbeliever. There is a coming judgment for all people. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27, the Scripture says, Man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. There's no reincarnation. There's no second chance here. We die and then comes the judgment. For the believer, it will be a judgment not for salvation, but we will be at the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, to give an account for our life, how we've used our time and our gifts, our talents. And for the unbeliever, there is coming that great white throne judgment when Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. And it will mean eternal life, or eternal punishment. Those are sobering thoughts to think about. 
And Jesus told the disciples about this before he went to the cross. In the parable of the talents, Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven is like a man going on a journey. And he was a wealthy man, and he left his servants in charge of his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one talent, each according to their ability. Now, it's hard for us to put an exact dollar value on how much a talent was worth, um, because a talent could be in gold, or it could be in silver, or it could be in bronze. The NIV footnote, I notice, says that a talent was worth more than a thousand dollars. Now, that's, that's an old footnote. <laughs> and it is worth much more than that. You see, one talent was about six thousand denarii. And that, uh, a denarii was like a day's wages for a laborer or a poor man. If you wanted to make a comparison and you said, okay, you took the minimum wage and you uh, took that by 6,000 days wages or about 20 years of labor, you might be looking at $250,000 for a talent. For eight talents, this man had about $2 million that he was entrusting to his servants to use wisely while he was gone. The master was away for a long time, just like Jesus' coming would be a while in his coming back for us. But a talent also represents more than money. Our English word talent comes from this passage of Scripture, and it represents our gifts and abilities, not just our wealth. It's whatever God has given to us. Those skills we have, those opportunities we've been given, those natural abilities as well as spiritual gifts we have been given are talents that are to be used for Him. And so here there is an expectation that we will wisely use the gifts that we have been given. We will use our talents in a way that advances the kingdom. And when the Master returns, He will ask us what we have done with the gifts that we have been given. Well, the man with five talents, we are told, went at once and he put them to work and he gained five more talents. The man with two talents did the same and gained two more and both of them were equally praised. Uh, These two individuals were true disciples who used what they had been given in a way that honored the Lord, and they were praised for that. And they are given greater responsibility, and they are invited to share in their Master's happiness. You know, when I think about uh, these men who were uh, faithfully using their gifts, and who stood before the Lord who said, Well done, good and faithful servant. I think of the picture that we are seeing right now at this time, you know, of the Olympics. I'm sure many of you are watching the Olympics. I I love it. I'm always amazed by the excellence in competition. And I think about how hard those individuals have worked just to get there. You know, for some, the honor is just being part of the Olympics. I mean, it's just getting there is a thrill for them. And you can tell that as they're looking around and taking it all in. And for, you know, many, just getting to heaven will be the greatest reward for us. You know, just being there and looking around at all that God has prepared for us, we will stand in amazement. But at the Olympics, there are also those who win the prize who receive a medal 
And for those who receive a gold medal, who claim that, that top prize, you know, many of them will say that the, the most powerful moment for them is when they stand on the podium and they see the flag of their country being raised and they hear the national anthem. And they think of all the work that has gone into this. And they think of representing their country. And at that moment, there are often tears of joy or smiles or relief. And they think all of the sacrifices, all of the work was worth it. Was worth it to receive the prize. And I think about that for us as believers who live our life in devotion to Christ. There are sacrifices God asks us to make. There are things He asks us to say no to because we say yes to Him. He asks us to give of our wealth, a tithe. He asks us to use our talents in a way that honors Him. He asks us to put Him first and to say no to sin. And that means that there are things in this life we don't do because of our love for Jesus Christ. But in the end, when we stand before Him to hear those words, well done, it will be all worth it. It will be all worth it. In fact, I think in our heart, many of us will be saying, why didn't we do even more? Why didn't we do more? Because of all that God has prepared for us. These individuals were praised. They used their gifts, each according to their ability, and God knows that. God has gifted all of us differently. We all have different gifts, and we can appreciate that in one another. In fact, last night there was kind of an interesting picture on the Olympics where uh, in Michael Phelps' last race as he was swimming, they showed Kobe Bryant, you know, the NBA all-star basketball player, video recording Michael Phelps swimming. And I'm thinking, you know, he's thinking, I can't do what he does. That's amazing what he's doing as a swimmer. And yet in his own sport, he's a great athlete. And sometimes in the body of Christ, you know, we look at one another and we think that. We think, you know, I look at those of you that are involved with children's ministry and I go, man, I'm just amazed at what you do with our kids. Working with cubbies on a Wednesday night with 50 to 60 kids in that little room that we have down there and you're just loving it and enjoying it and you're so good with the kids. And I know some of you have said to me, you know, you'd be scared to death to stand up in front of adults. I'd be scared to death to stand up in front of a bunch of, you know, little toddlers and wonder, what do I do now? Well, we're all different and we can appreciate those gifts that we have. God has made us to be a body. But the wicked servant, the third person here was not a believer. He was not a disciple. He thought that his master was a wicked master as well. One who was unjust. He hated his master. In fact, he slanderously accuses him here of being someone who harvests where he doesn't sow and gathers where he has not scattered seed. And so what did he do with the abilities he had been given? He just hit them in the ground. He had no desire to use them for his master's gain. And sadly, there are many people in our world who are just like Him. They want nothing to do with God. They do not want to admit that the gifts and abilities they have been given are a gift from God. And they squander them. They use them for selfish ends rather than for God's purposes. 
You see, our view of God affects the way that we live. If we believe that God is good and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him, we will use our gifts for His glory. But if we don't even believe there's a God, or if we think that God is a cruel taskmaster, or that He is not one who is worthy of being served, we're not going to use our gifts in that way. Our view of God affects the way that we live. And the two who put their talents to work were genuine disciples who were rewarded in the end. Well, secondly, what we see in these passages is that this will be a judgment based upon works. Now, let me read for us the story that Jesus tells about the sheep and the goats. He tells us, starting in verse 31, that when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This will be a judgment based on works. And that's a difficult concept for us to understand, because on the one side, we know that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We can't earn our salvation by doing good works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes that very clear, that we are saved only by God's grace. Yet on the other side, we also know that a genuine faith will result in a changed life. And the works that we do are really a proof or an evidence of our faith, that God has done a work in our heart. That's why James wrote, for example, in James chapter 2, these words. He said, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. 
James and also Paul, we'll talk about that in Romans, are saying that if our faith is genuine, then there should be. There will be an evidence of it. In fact, even in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the very next word, verse, excuse me, verse 10 says that God has prepared good works for us to do. God has done that in advance for us, that there are things that He wants us to accomplish in this life that again are an evidence of our faith. That will become apparent in that final judgment when we stand before the Lord. The parable of the sheep and the goats, sometimes this is called a parable, it is really more of a description of the final judgment than it is a parable. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, alludes to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. There's a picture there of where the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, gives all authority to the Son to judge. And the Son comes on the clouds with all of His angels with Him. Jesus is the judge. He's the one before whom every person will one day stand. It tells us here that all the nations will be gathered before Him. But they are not there to be judged as entities, but as individuals. Maybe that's part of the way that this is going to be organized in that final day. I mean, how do you judge billions of people? And they come before him. And it says that Jesus will separate the people one from another like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In Israel, herds were often mixed or flocks were mixed. And you would have sheep and goats there together, but they would be separated by the shepherd. When will this judgment take place? Well, depending upon your eschatology and your views, and there are two answers that are given. Some believe it will take place at the end of the Great Tribulation before the Millennial Kingdom. That would be a dispensational view, it would be called. Others believe that it will occur at the end of the age before the final state. And there are arguments that you can make each way. And, and that, to me, is not as important as the next question. Who are the least of these my brothers? Who is Jesus talking about there? And why is this important? Well, there are five suggestions that have been given. Some suggest that the least of these my brothers, Jesus is referring to all humanity, all people, everyone who's in need. And some have turned this into more of a social gospel then, that the way that we earn our salvation is by doing good deeds to those who are in need in our world. And there are many people who have kind of walked that way, even secular people who think that, you know, that's what we are here to do. A second suggestion is that Jesus is talking about all believers, spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. Some think it may refer to specifically Christian missionaries, just like the disciples in chapter 10 when Jesus sent out the disciples on their missionary journey. Others think that it refers to Jewish believers during the Great Tribulation or to tribulation martyrs, that it's going to be a judgment based on how the unbelieving world treated those who came to know Christ during the tribulation. I believe the best answer is that Jesus is talking about all believers. That's the way that he uses the word brothers in Matthew's Gospel. He is talking about those who have come into a relationship with him who belong to his family. Now why is that significant? 
Well, a couple of things. First of all, let me say that that doesn't mean that we are not to help all people in need. Galatians 6.10 answers that question. When it says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. There's a priority there, if you will, to care for God's people who are in need, and yet we are to show His love to all people. But why is this important? I believe it's because knowing that Jesus is talking about believers helps us to interpret this passage correctly. That Jesus is saying that the way that they treat you as believers is the way that they treat me. That's why this is significant. The actions, whether they cared for the least of these, my brothers, or did not. Because it's really about Jesus and about the way that we treat Him. It's like Matthew chapter 10. When Jesus sent out the the disciples on this missionary journey, He warned them that they're going to go to places where, where there would be all men who would hate you. And they're going to hate you because they hate me. And a servant is not above his master. And if they treated me that way, don't be surprised if they treat you that way. It's because of me. And likewise, there are going to be those people who will welcome you. And if they receive you, even if they give you a cup of water in my name, they will be rewarded. And they are doing that because of me. You see, that's why Jesus is saying, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. How the world treats Christ followers is very, very significant. And I think of nations where there is extreme persecution or where they have thrown out missionaries or they have thrown out those who believed in Christ they don't realize how severe that judgment really is. That they, are, that they are rejecting the very light of Christ that could bring them salvation. Whatever you do for one of the least of these, my brothers, you do for me. What is also interesting in this passage is the surprise of the sheep, the believers. They are surprised at Jesus' statement and they say, Well, Lord, when did we see you? When did we see you in prison or sick or needing help or hungry or thirsty? Their surprise at Jesus' statement shows that they weren't doing these acts of mercy to gain a reward, much less their salvation. They weren't doing this thinking that they were going to gain something for it. They were showing mercy and doing acts of kindness because God had changed their heart. That's what happens when we come to know Christ and and He begins to change us from the inside out. There are things that we do just simply because it's the right thing to do. And God has shown His grace to us and we're merciful to others or we want to help the people around us. It's not that we're thinking about reward. It's that we're being obedient to what Jesus has asked us to do. And the unrighteous did not do those things. And they too were surprised. They were condemned for their treatment of those who follow Jesus. What they did to them, whether it was from indifference or outright persecution, was how they treated Jesus. You know what's interesting about that too to me? Is that the righteous were not rewarded and the wicked were not condemned for some big act in their life. 
It was the little things that reflected their real character and whether or not they had faith in Jesus. It is the little things in our life that God looks at. These individuals were rewarded for visiting somebody who was in prison, for caring for someone who was in a hospital, for helping a brother who was in need, for maybe making that phone call or offering that prayer or coming alongside somebody who was hurting. It was those little actions in our life that honestly, you know, we're not even aware of. We, we just do it. If we love Jesus, we just do it. And we're not aware of it. We go because we care about people. And we do things because we love Him. And God's changed our heart. And how can we not do those things? This morning when you wrote out your check for the offering, when you were walking on the sidewalk in your neighborhood and God prompted you to pray for that home, and you don't know what's going on in that home, but God does, and you prayed. Or when God brought someone to mind in your life and you just you gave them a call and you said, you know, I've been thinking about you and how are you doing? It is those little things that we don't want to ignore. But in the end, will make all the difference. Leith Anderson tells a story in one of his sermons of a contest that he read about in India it's kind of the opposite, if you will, of the Olympics. It's a contest where they have a bicycle race in India, and the object of the race is to go the shortest distance possible within a specified time. And when the gun sounds, you know, everybody is lined up at the start of the race, tries to remain stationary for as long as they can. And they, they just inch forward because if they, you know, if their foot touches the ground or if they fall over, they're out of the race and they're done. Well, imagine that you were in that race and you're thinking this is kind of a normal race and you go, you know, man, that gun sounds, you take off, you start pedaling as hard as you can, you're waiting for the final gun to sound, you know, and you're just way out there in front of everybody and you're excited and, and the gun sounds and you think, man, I won, I won. And then you realize that you didn't understand the rules, that it wasn't about who could get the farthest but it was about who could go the shortest distance. Well, it's Jesus who gives us the rules for eternal life. The finish line is just on the other side of death where we will one day stand before the Lord. And the things that He says really are important to Him are those acts of mercy and kindness and compassion. It's the love that we show to one another that will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. It's those sacrifices that we made on His behalf. It's caring about others and not about ourselves. It's letting others go first and not pushing our way to the front. It is giving without expectation of getting in return. It's being humble, just like Jesus. And in the final judgment... What we see here is that the result will be either eternal life or eternal punishment in verse 46. The same word eternal is used to both, which argues against the annihilation of those who are condemned. Some people have tried to suggest that, that maybe in the end um, those that are condemned will just be extinguished and gone. But the same word eternal is used to apply to both life 
and punishment. And it is so hard for us to think of that. To think of someone's punishment lasting for eternity and we know that there will be different degrees of punishment just like there are different degrees of reward and we put that in God's hands. That God is just and He will do what is right. And we know that His justice demands punishment and He's the one who is going to determine what will be each one's fate. But for those who follow Christ, it will mean on that day the blessing of God, eternal joy, eternal life, and an eternal inheritance that has been prepared for us since the creation of the world. Did you catch that in verse 34? That the king on that day will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. That's a long time ago. And God has prepared this place for those who know Him to enjoy and to be with Him forever. For those who reject Christ and do not follow Him, it will mean darkness, eternal fire, eternal punishment, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are words that Jesus Himself used to describe that. And it's hard for us to hear it, but it needs to be said because it is the gospel truth. J.C. Ryle, preacher of the past, said that the watchman who keeps silent when he sees a fire is guilty of gross neglect. The doctor who tells us we are getting well when we are dying is a false friend. And the minister who keeps back hell from his people in his sermons is neither a faithful nor a charitable man. It is hard for us to hear. But those are the end results. In the end, there are only two kinds of people, those who know Jesus and those who do not. And there are two destinies, heaven or hell. Do you know where you are headed? Do you know where you will stand in that day? Have you placed your confidence, your trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? And for all of us, let's live our life today fully for the glory of God so that when that day comes, there will be no if-onlys and no regrets. But we will look back with joy on what God has done in our life. Let's pray. You know, if you're here this morning and you think about the words of what has been shared and you are uncertain of your relationship with Christ, I would encourage you today to open your heart to Him and to say, Jesus, would You forgive me of my sins and come into my life and be my Savior and Lord. And He will take you at Your Word and He will begin that new relationship with You. And Father, I pray for all of us that we would walk with You daily in fellowship, that when we become aware of our sin, that we would confess it and move on, and that we would use our gifts in ways that please You living life to the fullest for your honor and glory. Thank you, Father, that you've made us to be a church where we can encourage one another in the family of God. And we look forward to the opportunities that we have to serve you in this community and around the world. And Lord, would you be pleased to work in us those things that are pleasing to you and help us to live our lives fully devoted to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.